And many of you have thought you knew something and then later had to change your mind and go a different direction. Well, the rest of you, hang on, we're going to give an altar call shortly. I'm sure all of us have it at one time or other in one way or the other. We thought we were believing or acting in a correct fashion and then discovered later that that wasn't the best way to see that, understand that, or act in that way. And that's something that's common to all of us. Because you know what? All of us as believers have a perfect standing before God, but sometimes we don't all act perfectly. Would you agree with that? Because of the lack of information, the lack of knowledge, or the lack of ability, sometimes we goof up. And that goes with our way of thinking as well as behavior. So today I want to pick up where I left off about two weeks ago. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know I started talking about worldview. And I didn't get through all of it. I want to pick up where I left off. But one of the things that we said in the beginning was that there are some basic ways and places that determine our worldview. The number one place is your home life. That's a a good place to have a good worldview instilled within us. But regardless, good or bad, that's where we often have it from the very beginning, is your home. Secondly is church, what you hear at church, what you see at church, what you're taught in Bible classes, Sunday morning, uh, youth services, whatever, that determines and helps us develop a good worldview. Third is education. Maybe you went to public school, private school, home school, whatever. That determines to a large degree what our worldview is, how we see reality. The media is another one that determines that it determines uh, you can just go to Facebook or all the other outlets and you can uh, see what people are saying and what they believe about certain things. All of those together causes us to have a viewpoint as to what we see is reality. We also pointed out before that it can be a materialistic outlook, what the five senses reveal to us, Or it can be an immaterial or spiritual outlook. And so you can go either way with that. And perhaps the best point would be the rightful place of both of those. We mentioned uh, that you got here today because of your senses. Your senses helped you get here. Your senses helped you get dressed, shave your face, wash your face, comb your hair, drive your car. Senses were involved, and that's correct uses of those. But it should not have stopped there. You and I should have a worldview that makes place for the spiritual, the supernatural. Not just what the senses will tell you, but what God says and is, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Those things as well as the material, the physical. Well, today I want to go just a little bit further than that. There's a passage of Scripture in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 28. And I bet many of you know this verse. But I'm not sure that we always get the best interpretation of what it's saying. 
If you read this from the King James, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who are called. Well now, if you believe that, you're going to have a flaw in your worldview. So what do you mean by that? That's not the best possible translation of that particular verse. I think a better one is the NIV. It, it actually explains and brings forth what is most revealed in the Greek when it says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His Do you see a difference between those? The first one said, we know that all things work together for good. And you know, if you know that there's a devil in the world, you have to say that's not true. A lot of things happen to us that are not working for our good. There's a devil out there. And John 10.10 says, the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. All things that happen to you are not working for your good. Some are out to kill you. And that guy's name is the devil, Satan, the serpent, and so on. He is out to kill, steal, and destroy. He's not trying to do things to, for your benefit. You say, well, can't the devil, uh, his work be turned around? Yes, it can. Thank you, Jesus. But you and I need to have a worldview that says because we believe there's a spirit realm that contains both good and bad spirits. God, Holy Spirit, angels are all good spirits. Satan, demons are all bad spirits. And God and His force are working for your good and the devil and His force are working for your bad. It's that simple. And a correct understanding of that verse ought to lead us to see there's some activity going on in the unseen realm that we may not be aware of or we may not be paying attention to. And our view, worldview needs to include that. So I've had this said to me, and, and I've often heard other people say it, well, you know, that, you know, I got sick and I had a very serious condition, but God used it to teach me something. Maybe He used it to teach you don't do it again. Alright? Maybe he, he, he could use it to tell you you need to change your outlook on some things. No, I don't believe that God... That's not God's number one way of using those situations. If we believe that God uses bad things to teach you a good lesson, that says a lot about us and not much about God. And let me tell you why. God's number one way of correcting us is not a bad circumstance. His number one way of correcting us is His Word. The revelation and conviction of the Holy Spirit within your spirit. Those are His top two ways to correct us. He doesn't have to put a disease on somebody. He doesn't have to do something, a calamity to them to teach them something. No. If He does have to do that, and He did do that in the Old Testament, but folks, we're living in the New Covenant. If He does do that, that says we are dense. 
That says we don't know and obey the Word. That says we're not listening to the voice of the Spirit of God and the only way He can get our attention is whack us with something. Like I said, that don't say much about God, but it may say more about us if that's our viewpoint. But the first response ought to be out of us when things do happen bad, and they do happen bad to everybody here. They do happen. When they do happen, we need to do a couple of things. Number one, we ought to examine ourselves and see, did I open a door that allowed that to happen? Did I resist God in some way? And that shouldn't take you forever to decide that. In just a matter of a few minutes, you, if you're honest with yourself and God, you should know something that you probably did that may have allowed that to happen, and then fix it right away. You can repent in less than 30 seconds. And then the second thing is not only where am I in this situation, but where's the devil at in this situation? What's he trying to do? He's trying to kill, he's trying to steal, he's trying to destroy. So I'm going to rise up on the inside and I'm going to say, no, Mr. Devil, you cannot do that. I'm not going to lay there and take it. No. See, the devil is a bad devil and God's a good God. It's about as straightforward as I know how to say it. Good things come from God. The book of James says that. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. Meaning, God never changes from doing good to doing bad. He never does that. He is a good God all the time and all the time God is good. Always. Now, are we always good? No. But you know what? He loves us anyway. And His blood sacrifice worked for us. There's another area that we need to perhaps adjust in our worldview. And that's on the subject of faith, hope, and presumption. I don't know about you, but there have been times when I presumed something and I thought I was in faith and I found out later I wasn't. Anybody beside me ever done that? You know, I thought I was walking in faith. I thought I was believing the Word correctly. But I discovered later to my chagrin that I wasn't. I was presuming because God did something for me this way at a particular time that because I'm facing a similar situation that He was automatically going to do it the same way this time. Maybe not. Or because I saw and heard a testimony that somebody gave about something that happened miraculously. Well, I believe I'll do that. Maybe God will do that for me. Folks, that's not faith. That's presumption. You say, well, don't you believe that, that God is no respecter of persons? I absolutely am. I do believe that. That God is no respecter of persons. But I also know this. He is a respecter of faith. He is a respecter of faith. Because you see, the individual that gives a dramatic testimony may have been in a place of faith that you may not be at this particular point in time. He may be in a, in a particular place in faith that you may not be at this particular time. And faith moves the hand of God. God responds to faith. So we need to get this correct. Uh, the definition, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Stop there a minute. 
Hope is the foundation for faith. In, the, in that, before faith is going to be matured or materialized, it starts with a hope or an expectation. Hope simply means, I desire it. I'm expecting it. But hope and faith are not one and the same. Oftentimes we pe- hear people saying, well, you know, I'm just a hoping and a praying. Well, you do have to hope before faith materializes. That's, that's true. But before you're going to get it, the hope has to turn into some faith. Faith is when you are convinced biblically that what you're hoping for is something God has provided for you. Not because He did it for Sister Sally. Not because your grandma prayed and then she got it. But because you're convinced that this hope that you have that's a deep settled expectation on the inside is something God has provided for you and you are believing it based on the promises of the Word of God. See, that's what faith is. And it is the evidence or the substance of things not yet seen. That's what faith is. You have to have hope before you can have faith. Presumption is thinking or believing that something's going to happen because it happened to somebody else. Look at Mark 11, 23 and 24. Back in the 70s and 80s, for those of you that weren't around back then. Back in the 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s, there was what was taught as the, there was a faith quote movement, unquote. And in that, this was one of the primary verses that was always taught. Debbie and I went to a meeting one time of a, of a church that was started out of, in the, and it was called the Sheep Shed. And it was, the reason it was called that because it was started in a barn. They literally drove the cows out, scooped out the manure, set up chairs, and had church. All right? Called the Sheep Shed. And we were going over there, and that was a faith church, meaning that they really, really, really emphasized this, these two verses. So I was scheduled to speak there tonight, and I preached, and I intentionally left out Mark 11. Now, I taught something that would be encouraging, that required a belief in God and God, but I did not use this verse. A lady came up to me after church, said, question for you. I said, what's that? She said, why didn't you use Mark eleven twenty four? I said, because there's other scriptures in the Bible besides Mark eleven twenty four. But I am going to use it. For assuredly I say to you, that whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Now did you notice some things there? He says, the person can say to that mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, and if he doesn't doubt in his heart, I'm going to deal with that in a minute, but he shall believe that the things he is saying shall be done, he shall have it. 
Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe. When are you going to believe? When you pray. So that means our worldview has to affect what we say and believe when we pray. You're going to believe when you pray. Believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, let's move on to the next point, doubt and unbelief, because it fits in with that verse. You know what doubt is? Doubt is basically being unconvinced. Being unconvinced. One time we were on a trip to Israel, and we're in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. You know, the same place that Jesus got out of the boat and walked on the water? And some of our people on that boat were saying, okay, who's going to be the first one to jump out of the boat and walk on the water? And one of them asked me, said, you going to do it first? I said, no, I'll do it second. Stop that. I didn't ask you anything. My phone was talking to me. I said, you know, I'll do, I'll do it second. The reason being, I got some doubt about it. I got some doubt about me being able to walk on the water. I'm not convinced I can do that. You know what will happen to me if I try to walk on water with doubt in my heart? And I don't swim. So to doubt is to be unconvinced. But you know what unbelief is? It's worse than doubt. Unbelief is the refusal to believe when one has the opportunity to do so. I refuse to believe that. You ever said that? Hebrews 3.12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. God calls unbelief evil. Now, doubt's not good, but it's not as bad as unbelief. Doubt means I need more information before I can believe that. Unbelief has got all the information it needs and says, I just refuse to believe that. I'll give you an example. 1967, my brother and I and some other Baptist pastors were... were Getting concerned about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, some of us got filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, got carried over into the church service, what we preached and what we taught. And at my brother's church, uh, one, of his, one of his deacons came up because they were talking about praying for the sick and, and believing in signs and wonders and miracles and things like that. One of his deacons came up to him one day and said to him, I know you're preaching that, but I refuse to believe that. Now, Scripture says that's an evil heart. That's an evil heart. And as I recall the story, right, my brother told him that. <laughs> you know, that's the type of statements that get you burned at the stake or something of that nature. And he said, that, that's, don't you know the Bible says, if, if you refuse to believe, that's evil? But see, we need to know what doubt is and what unbelief is. 
Because if we want to pray in faith, said, and shall not doubt in his heart, don't be unconvinced, not up here, in here. Your head and your heart are not the same thing. Your head can be unconvinced, but your spirit can know what truth is. See, if my head says you can't walk on water, and if I'm convinced that I can't, uh, it's going to be a detriment to my spirit to walk on water. Unless I've got truth in my spirit that supersedes what I'm thinking with my head. I know that I know that I know that I know I can walk on water. How are you going to know for sure? Well, I'm going to know it because I got it in my spirit. Number two, I'm going to step out and do it. It's a big difference. Big difference. Number four, another truth that we need to get real solid in our viewpoint is the grace of God. The grace of God. What is it? Well, grace is known as two things. One is it's an unmerited favor of God. That's the traditional definition. But folks, that's not all that grace is. Grace is also the use or the expression of God's divine ability. Grace is twofold. If God gives me grace, that means God is merciful to me when I don't deserve it. That's unmerited favor. But beyond that, if God gives me measures of grace, that means I can do whatever He's told me to do. It don't matter what it is. If He told me to do it, I can do it. I can do it. If He told me I can. If He's called you to do something, and he, he will give you the grace to do what He called you to do. You say, well, I don't have the ability. I'm glad you understand that. That's one of the first things you ought to understand if God calls you to do something. Lord, by myself, I cannot do that. You know what? He already knew that. That's no surprise to him. If you and I tell God something we can't do, that does not surprise him. He already knew all that. No bother to even tell him that. That's a waste of breath. He knows that. But if he does in fact call you to do something, he'll give you the grace to do it. He gives you the ability to do that. 1 Corinthians 15.10, listen to the Apostle Paul. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul said, I am what I am by God's grace. His unmerited favor, yes, but His divine ability also. And he said, I labored, yes I labored, more than those around me. But it wasn't me, it was the grace of God that was at work. Now, you and I need to have a viewpoint of God's grace so that we realize whatever God says is truth and He backs it up. He backs it up. I remember when as a college student I felt God call me at the age of 17 into ministry to be a pastor and Bible teacher. I had an uncle that was a pastor. I had a brother-in-law that was a pastor. And I had a brother that was a pastor. And I had some other kin folks that were involved full-time in church ministry. And I thought, dear Lord. And then I had two other brothers that were deacons. I said, Lord, here's the deal. 
why don't you call one of my deacon brothers and let him be a pastor? You see, I'm going to play Major League Baseball and replace Mickey Mantle and make millions of dollars. I'm sure God got a chuckle out of that. Uh, yeah, you, uh, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. But you know, he didn't call one of my brothers. He called me. And my next statement was, God, I can't do that. He already knew that. He already knew that. That wasn't a surprise to him. But you know, I found out later, if God called me, he, he can help me do that. He can enable me to do that. He can give me something on the inside that will empower me to do that. That's the reason I got hungry for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I pastored about three months and I realized I'm over my head. You know, I was 18 by this time when I started pastoring. And I, I realized after about three months, Lord, I think you made a mistake. Some of these folks are, are me, one, need some relief. You know, the Jerry Clower, you know who Jerry Clower was? He was out coon hunting with his friends. And uh, one guy saw a, a coon up in the tree. And he went up there to get it out. And when he got up there, it wasn't a coon, it was a lynx. Like a bobcat. And he tackled that thing thinking it was a, a coon going to take it out. And, and that bobcat started tearing him up. He called down to his friend and said, shoot up here. He said, I can't shoot up there. I might hit you. He said, shoot up here. One of us needs some relief. <laughs> That's the way I felt pastoring a church. I needed some relief. I, and they probably did too. Lord, we need something to happen here. Dear God. I've run out of anything to preach. And I'm studying theology five days a week, several hours a day. Lord, I, I can't do this. And I'm sure God must have said to himself, I'm glad you figured that out. I never intended you to do that by yourself. That's why he provided the helper, the Holy Spirit the intercessor, and the power. So grace means not only unmerited favor, it means divine ability for whatever God has called you to do. Now, there's, I'm going to give you six things about grace that you and I can mishandle. I found six of them in Scripture. Number one, it can be received in vain, which was what 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said he did not do. By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. Now, the grace of God is in vain when you do not allow it to have its work in your life. Let me say that again. The grace of God is received in vain if you do not allow it to have its work in your life. If God gives you grace for something and you don't respond like you should and keep doing things the way you were doing them before, then you receive God's grace in vain. It's just going to sit there and not do anything for you. Number two, you can set it aside. That's Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. Paul said, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. Set it aside. In other words, not only do you not use it, you say, nope, I don't believe I want that. 
I'm going to do it this way anyway. And you know what will happen if you do that? If you, if you persist to do that, here's what will happen. God will say, okay, have at it. Until you and I learn that we cannot do what we should be doing by ourselves. Do you know every parent needs the grace of God to be a parent? Some of you have already realized that, I know. Whatever God's called you to do, you need His grace to enable you to do it. Number three, you can fall from it. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, let me tell you something here. This is a phrase of a verse that's often used by Arminianism those who believe you can get saved one day and lost the next and get saved the next day and lost the next and get saved the next day and lost the next, believe that type of theology. And they use that phrase to verify it. That's not actually what it's talking about. We're talking about Christians moved away from the grace of God and put themselves back under Old Testament law. It has nothing to do with salvation or lostness. Is talking about obedience or disobedience. They have moved out of grace and gone back to be law keepers under the Mosaic law. You say, well, what does that have to do with us? Because there's a lot of people in our day that are doing that. There's lots of people in our day that are doing that. You know, we live under the terms of the new covenant, not the old. The ceremonial law of God has no effect today for new covenant believers. Say, so, well, isn't it important? Yes, it's a picture. It's a prophetic picture of what Jesus was going to do when He was coming to the cross. That's what it was all about. Now that He's come, now that He's done that work, why should we settle for a picture? I have a picture of my wife on my desk. It's a beautiful picture of her. Do you know, I'd rather see her face to face than look at that picture. And that picture won't cook any meals for me. <laughs> it won't wash any clothes. It won't do a single thing to benefit me. But if she were to be gone for a couple of weeks, it, I would look at that picture and I'd have some nice memories. Are you here? The law is the picture that Jesus is coming and when He comes, He's going to do this, He's going to do this, He's going to do this, He's going to do this. He's already come. He's already done that. He already died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended back. And we don't have to settle for a picture. We can have Him living on the inside of us. These people in Galatia they had moved out of the grace of God, moved away from it, and went back under the Mosaic Law. And that's called falling from or moving out of. Number uh, four, or the next one, in, insult the grace of God. Hebrews 10.29 How much sore punishment do you suppose will be, he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy or a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. 
What do you do when you insult the Spirit of grace? You refuse to allow God to be who the Bible says He is. These people had trampled the Son of God underfoot. Now, He's not really the Son of God. They counted the blood of the covenant by which they had been sanctified. He's addressing it to believers as a common or unholy thing, and they insulted the Spirit of grace. And let me tell you, those three things are not a good idea for anybody. It's not a good idea. Number five, fall short of the grace. Hebrews 12, 15, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. Fall short. That means you are not adhering to the word, the leadership of God, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, or the Scriptures. You're not adhering to them. You're only doing just a little bit. You know, I, I, I can do just a little bit and get by. I don't know about you. In my early years in school, I was the type of person I just did barely enough to get by. I hate to admit that, but I was. I just did barely enough. If I got a C, I thought, hey, a C, that's average, that's good, that's about where I am. You can be a C Christian. Just do barely enough to keep the wrath of God from falling on you. <laughs> See, that's what these Christians were doing. They were falling short of the grace of God. In other words, they weren't living up to where they should have been living, and they knew it. This wasn't something they did not know. No, this was done intentionally. Number six, they had turned it into lasciviousness or lewdness, Jude 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means somebody says, maybe you're talking to yourself and realize you've done something wrong, and then you give yourself an excuse to keep on disobeying God and doing what you wanted to do when you knew it was wrong and turned it into immorality. I've had people tell me this before. You know, and they use an example out of Scripture that fits whatever sin they want to keep on doing. I had an alcoholic brother. My oldest brother was an alcoholic for 25 years. Before he got right with God, got healed, got delivered, and then he lived for God for 27 more years before he died. And that's the good part of the story. But I remember talking to him and other people of similar conditions, drug addicts, alcoholics, who would say, well, you know, Jesus in the Bible said to the woman taken in adultery, neither do I condemn you. So he, he would say, so you can't condemn me for this. I said, but you didn't read the rest of the verse. What did he say do to that woman? Go and sin no more. See, he didn't condone her behavior. He recognized her behavior, but told her how to get out of it. 
He forgave her and then tells her, don't keep doing it. An individual who turns the grace of God into lasciviousness uses the thought of grace as an okay to do whatever they choose to do. Well, God's grace is going to be there. There's a sense which I would agree with that. Yes, it will be, but that does not give you the out to do something when you know God disapproves of it. Okay? That is turning it into lewdness. Because these individuals here referred to, they were bringing uh, prostitution into the church. I'm talking about not just a person who used to be involved in that activity, but somebody who presently was, and they were accepted, and it was okay for them to do it. All right? That's turning the grace of God into lewdness. And he said those individuals have refused to obey God. They have intentionally disobeyed God. Now let's move on to the fifth topic. The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Things that we need to correct or get a more concise view of that would affect our worldview is the love of God. There's an old hymn of the church. The love of God, how pure, how measureless, it shall forever remain, and so on and so on and so on. The love of God is absolutely fantastic. God is love, the Bible says, in several places. That's His very nature. God is love. But does he recognize wrong? Absolutely. He doesn't let his love blind him to seeing wrong and sin. No. He sees it. He knows it. But for the repentant, he forgives and washes it away. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13.1. Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, that's the agape, God type, I have become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. Sounding brass or clinging... Now we're talking about the great Apostle Paul who's using himself as the example. And he says, if I can have the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have God's love flowing, I have become a sounding brass and a clinging cymbal. What's that mean? That means there's nothing good coming out of it. You know, if I were to go over here and just start banging on these cymbals, and I don't know the first thing about playing cymbals or drums, but if I took a, a, a stick and just pretty soon you're going to say, where's the door? Paul said, good works done without the love of God, that's what it's like. I didn't say that, he did. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Wow. Kind of puts those things in their place, doesn't it? You know, some of us want to see signs and wonders and prophecies and understand mysteries and have all faith and remove mountains by our faith. And we really should want that. We really should. But we need to... It needs to be exercised in love. All of those gifts need to be exercised with a God type of love. You know, 
different ministries require different fruit to make them function up to their potential. If you have a prophet who has a harsh spirit, you're going to get a tainted message. Hello? You are. Because the attitude of the vessel is going to take the message that flows through him. And the same thing is true of a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist or, or apostle. You know, the attitude, the intent and purpose of that person, the vessel through whom it flows, the gift flows, will affect for either good or bad the message or the ministry. So Paul is saying here, even though I could have a fantastic gift of prophecy, I could understand mysteries, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and so on, and not, that I may have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I don't have love. He said, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What's he saying? He's saying that love is the ingredient that reveals the life and nature of Jesus to the maximum. If you can raise the dead, but you got a mean spirit about you, the resurrected dead person probably doesn't want to be around you. That's right. He said, it profits me nothing. Now, what about that fellow? Oh, yeah, it profits them. But as far as you're concerned, it profits you nothing. What am I saying? I'm saying that our worldview needs to be one of love. That is the agape love. The love of God that is pure, that is holy, that is the very nature of God. Now, you and I need to understand something. There's a big difference between sympathy and love or compassion. They're not one and the same. Sympathy is, I'm sorry that you're hurting said sincerely, that's a good thing. That's not compassion or the love of God. You know what the love of God does, compassion does? It doesn't just say, you have my sympathy, but I'm willing to act like Jesus for you right now and help you through this. Can you see a difference between those? I remember when both my father and my mother died, I mean, there's hundreds of people that came to the visitation and, and the services and all that, and dozens of them would come up and shake your hand and say, you have my sympathy. Well, after about 25 of those, I, I was thinking, get that stuff off me. I need to go take a bath. That's the way I felt. Because I knew sympathy and compassion are not the same. Compassion says, if you're carrying a load, I'll get under the load and help you carry it. That's the love of God. See, Jesus didn't just tell us what was good. He died for us. He took our place on the cross. That's love. He was willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of all the rest of us. That's the example of what love is. So love and, and sympathy are not the same. Compassion is love in action. That's the love of God where one puts it into action. 
and expresses it to the person that's in need at the moment. What can I do to help you? How can I carry your load? Sometimes it may be nothing more than just letting them know you are thinking about them and praying for them. And then really do pray for them. You know, a lot of times we tell people, I'm going to pray for you, then forget it and never do it. You know, I'm going to pray for you, then I'm going to, let's pray for you. Whether we do it right then or not. See, compassion says, I'm going to take the love of God that's in me, I'm going to put it into action in a way that would benefit somebody, this person. That is compassion. That needs to be our worldview of it. See, if we can get some of these very basic things, if we can get them to affect our worldview so that we see these situations the way that God sees them, then the message, the ministry, the action that flow through us will not put a stain on the character or the anointing of God, but will let it flow through pure and holy. 